All right, welcome back to Let's Talk About God. We hope everybody's having a happy new year. Why does it feel so like it's been a long time since we recorded? Just because we've been on holidays doing nothing, laying around. And then we're a week later. That must be the other thing. Yep. Because you had the COVID scare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, we really didn't really let y'all know about that, but I thought maybe I had COVID. And so we had to put this recording back. But it's fine. The test came back negative. Yeah. I mean, it happened to me. Test came back negative. So that was... Other folks are not so fortunate. So uh, we're in the month of January. It's a new year. And... We just got some good stuff for you. 2021 is is upon us. And hopefully we'll be better than the last year. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we're excited because we've actually got a very special guest today. Um, today, we have got Dr. Luke Stance from Anderson University. So we just want to welcome him on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. So go ahead and just give us an introduction. Who are you? What do you do? Just what, what's your deal? Sure, right. So yeah, I teach uh, theology at Anderson University. Uh, this is my fourth year there. Uh, before that, I taught uh, theology at California Baptist University in Southern California, uh, I'm originally from Alabama, though, um, small town in Alabama. Went to Auburn University. Oh, good. We're going to cut this short. This is, yeah. is going to be a real short podcast if you said you're an Alabama fan. Yeah, no, just, War Eagle, always. <laughs> okay, we, we can handle that. I mean, yeah. He's a tiger. He's just the wrong one. Yeah, just the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on all the ways that, that Clemson has uh, stolen things from Auburn. Oh, oh come, come on. on. All right, we are cutting I've made short. the same argument. End it now. We called it Auburn with a lake. That's what yeah. <laughs> is. Um, but yeah, so I went to Auburn University, I got a degree in history there, uh, met my wife there, and then I went on to seminary at um, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and did a couple of degrees there, an MDiv and then a PhD in systematic. Um, so yeah, that's what I do. I love to, to teach, teach people about God, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, been a great, great experience. And I know I've talked to you before, you had like a short stint in ministry, right? But you, after that, you knew, I want to go into the academics, be in the university, you felt like that was your calling. Yeah, that's right. So whenever mm-hmm. whenever I was doing the MDiv, I uh, pastored a, a small rural church in Kentucky um, and, and really in, enjoyed that. I got good experience preaching. Um, and every church that, that I've been a part of since then, I've either been on the teaching team, Sunday school, or on the preaching team, mm-hmm. or both. And so I'm still, you know, involved in local church ministry, just not vocationally. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Well, the reason we brought you on here today is because recently, so was it 2020 or 2019? Yeah, June 2020. June 2020, you and a group of colleagues and friends released a book, Baptist and the Christian Tradition Towards an Evangelical Baptist Catholicity. Now, that is a mouthful, but I like it. I want to break it down. Really, that's what this whole episode is about today. Um, Baptist and the Christian tradition. So maybe first off, explain to us what is the Christian tradition? A lot of people are probably, you know, they come from a Baptist background, but what is the Christian tradition? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of it's related to the notion that, um, which is a New Testament notion, that the church is is not merely local. Mm-hmm. Um, now, most of the times, most of the time, when the New Testament uses the word church, ecclesia, in the Greek, it's referring to a specific local church. Mm-hmm. You know, the church at Corinth or the church at Rome, etc. But there are a few places in the New Testament where 
uh, we get this sense of the universal church, you know, like in Ephesians 5, whenever Paul says that, that, that Christ died for the church. <clears throat> He's not there thinking about just the Ephesian church, right? But it's the whole church, mm-hmm. uh, all the people of God. And so when we talk about the tradition, we're, we're simply thinking about that notion of the universal church as it's extended throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a, a church history professor in seminary who said that it's his, he sees it as his goal in the church history class to convince his students that there were Christians who existed between the Apostle Paul and their grandmother. <laughs> uh, and that's the sense that we mean yeah. by the Christian tradition is that there, there, are, there have been faithful Christian uh, believers uh, who may have you know, looked different than us, may have had diff- very different beliefs than us in some ways. Uh, but who have held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the revelation of God that they experienced in Jesus Christ uh, down through the centuries. Mm-hmm. And so the tradition in that sense is just the faithful deposit of, of the truth of God in Jesus Christ as it's been handed down through, through the centuries. Mm-hmm. Now for us, as far as us looking back, when you reference the Christian tradition, do you primarily mean church history as an events? Do you mean important documents? creeds, or do you mean, yes, all of that? Yeah, I mean, the, when we talk about the tradition, sort mm-hmm. of with a capital T, um, we're thinking there especially about the the core uh, doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, there are many traditions, plural, uh, that we could point to, um, the Catholic tradition, the Methodist tradition, the Pentecostal tradition, the Baptist tradition, and so on. But when we talk about sort of capital T tradition, We, I, I'm thinking anyway there of um, of the 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 faith once for all delivered to the saints, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the truth of, of God and as revealed in the Trinity uh, and, and the incarnation and so on. And yeah, it's encapsulated, I think, in uh, some of the early church creeds and councils. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know um, that for evangelicals, for Baptists, for Pentecostals, one of the core principles that we have is the principle of sola scriptura, you know, the rallying rallying cry of the Reformation, which is scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority. It's where we get all of our source for doctrine and practice. This is what matters. Uh, and yet your book is greatly exploring the influence and impact of church history. And oftentimes people have allowed these two principles to conflict, that it's either the Bible alone and we just sort of shut our eyes to the past, or maybe we go so heavy on the past that we'll kind of twist the Bible to be whatever. How does the principle of sola scriptura and the Christian tradition work together to bring us to the truth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, and I am certainly committed as a Protestant and as a Baptist to this uh, notion that, that the Scripture is the supreme final authority for everything that we are to believe and to do, right, as Christians. Mm-hmm. So that, so that you, you in, in a sense, it has to do with, with the, the conscience of the Christian. Like, I, you, you can't bind my conscience to believe something or to do something unless it's clearly revealed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that I'm committed to as a Christian and as a Protestant, um, you might have many opinions. You know, you think, I think about this especially in terms of the preaching of the word, right? I mean, the preacher may have many opinions, um, and some of those are getting expressed these days, opinions about culture and politics and social realities, and they, they may be you know, very wise and inform, informed by Scripture. Uh, but, but the preacher can't bind the conscience of the faithful beyond what God has revealed in Holy Scripture, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why fundamentally preaching is exposition. It's, it's, it's exposing what God has revealed in Scripture and applying it to our lives. 
Um, so, I'm very, very uh, fiercely committed, right, to this notion that mm-hmm. that the the final bar, so to speak, uh, of of discerning what God uh, wants us to believe and do is Scripture. Uh, but as we look at what the Protestant reformers themselves actually taught and practiced, <clears throat> they didn't believe, therefore, that there were no other authorities other than the Bible. Right, the Bible is the supreme authority, but that doesn't mean that there are no other authorities. And you think about it, even in a, in a a very practical and, and closer to home kind of way that pastors, in a sense, have uh, an authority in the church, right? That that they they do the the hard work of study and prayer and preparation, so that as a rule, uh, Christians should respect and defer to the authority of their pastors on matters of faith. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor is infallible, right? <laughs> um, you know, I whenever I preach, I encourage people to test these things, right, right to make sure that they. Uh, conform to scripture. So, has, the, has anybody ever taken you up on it? Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, you know, especially I teach you know at the university. Like the one thing that people uh, already come in with opinions about is religion. You mm-hmm. know, so like I mean, very few people come in with uh, opinions about like uh, you know sociology or or um, yeah. you know the intricacies of the Peloponnesian Wars, but they do come in to, to the university with opinions about the Bible. <laughs> Um, so yeah, people will take you up on that. Uh, and that's great. That's fine. I mean, you know, I think we, again, the, the pastor is not infallible, mm-hmm. but as a rule, I respect my pastor, you know, once he's done the hard work of study, I respect what, he, what he's done. The same thing with parents and children, right? I mean, the, the children have parents as their authority, uh, and Christian parents are the spiritual authority in their, mm-hmm. in their children's lives. Again, that doesn't mean they're perfect, uh, or that they're infallible or that it's not that they're, you know, beyond correction, but they are a kind of authority. Uh, pastors and parents are a kind of authority um, to the degree that they're conforming to Scripture. And and as we kind of expand that beyond uh, those local circumstances, we, we could think about the church as a whole, right, down through the centuries. What what Christians have believed as, as a consensus um, has a kind of authority, right? Uh, or, or or church confessions, right, mm-hmm. or or. Or, or that sort of thing, the, diff- the different ways that we assemble together. I mean, I take it you guys as, as Church of God uh, pastors, uh, you, I take it you have some confessional statement or mm-hmm. some at least some parameters mm-hmm. that, that you abide by. That has a kind of authority, right? It, it, it's, not, it's not an intrinsic authority. It's an authority that's derived from Scripture, yeah. right? So it's a derivative authority. Um, but it, it is a kind of authority that, that, is, that stands underneath the ultimate supreme authority of Scripture, and it's that it's in that sense that the reformers were perfectly willing to appeal to the tradition of of Christian doctrine and Christian interpretation. I mean, if you read, you know, Luther and Calvin, uh, sometimes especially Luther has a, a very strong polemic against the tradition, against you know popes and councils and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, but upon closer inspection, uh, Luther and, and then especially Calvin, I think, if you read their works, they appeal often to the Church Fathers, especially to Saint mm-hmm. Augustine. Uh, but even to other uh, other theologians, you know, one of one of uh, John Calvin's favorites is uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, the medieval theologian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are others as well. I mean, the, the reformers and their heirs. The Book um, of Concord is like almost defensive about it. Like yeah, we are not right. inventing something new. Exactly right. Yeah. So so they weren't suggesting that that. I mean, th- this is what Protestantism, unfortunately, has sort of become in many sectors, where sola scriptura has been turned into a kind of extreme private interpretation mm-hmm. understanding of, of authority. Uh, and that's just not what the reformers taught. They didn't teach that, that, that sort of private authority now trumps every other 
authority. They still believed in ordained ministry. They still believed that there were uh, that that we could learn from the creeds and councils and the tradition of the church. Their point was just to say those things are not infallible. They have to finally answer to Scripture mm-hmm. and what God has clearly revealed in Scripture. So it's really the supreme authority of Scripture. It's not to suggest that Scripture is the only authority mm-hmm. in the Christian faith. Um, and so that that's I think how we balance uh, the two. That that the tradition is is you know one of the most common ways the medieval theologians referred to it is is the tradition uh, sort sort of, sort of like um, the the way the medieval uh, theologians referred to philosophy as a kind of handmaiden, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of servant to scripture, but it's not something that trumps scripture or that stands over against it. And that's really what the reformers were trying to recover. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'm thinking: <clears throat> so we understand sola scriptura, scripture alone. Which those of you listening, that's Latin, and but out of scripture, so so that this isn't a man-made concept. This is a tremendously biblical concept. Is the very simple idea of sound doctrine. Paul would talk constantly about sound doctrine and avoiding false doctrine. And doctrine, by definition, is some kind of compilation or a systemization of that which is found in scriptures, mm-hmm. and so. I know uh, when I read I read your chapter in your book, and and I was reading several other chapters. Um, I love the fact there was a lot of emphasis on the creeds and the confessions because, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, when you get down to it, a creed or confession is ultimately some sort of sound doctrine. Uh, it went, when they were going through the, the the incarnation, and that was a big deal. Maybe you want to address that. Um, there was the heresies that kept cropping up. I mean, this goes all the way back to the the second, third, fourth centuries, you know, the, 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 the Nicene councils, et cetera, that it, it, scripture alone was not enough because what you said, it was moving to that private interpretation. So mm-hmm. Arian, Arius was his yeah. name and, and, and several others, uh, origin, these guys were, they were interpreting scripture, but it, it needed, for the sake of staying true to the scripture, it needed the church to, to come back and say, as an authority, what you're saying, you know, you're talking about the pastor, but in this case, it took the, the leadership and the general church to say, no, this is not sound doctrine. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to address that? Because I know yeah. that's really heavy in your book. I really right. noticed that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so what the church is doing is not, not saying something other than what scripture has said, right? I mean, the, the creeds and the councils don't, in a, in a sense, they don't supplement what Scripture says, but they are seeking to explain and defend in a systematic way all that Scripture does say about right. the Trinity, about Christ, and so on. Um, so it's not something that—it's not as if we have—I mean, this is this is one of the ways that a Protestant appeal to tradition is going to look very different than a Catholic or an Orthodox appeal to tradition, uh, because we don't believe that tradition stands alongside Scripture as a kind of— um, partner in revelation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so what you're saying, tradition doesn't have something that scripture doesn't. Right, that's right. right. The tradition is simply trying to to summarize, that's what the creeds are doing. They're summarizing uh, in a coherent way all that scripture does say, right? Uh, this is really the task of theology, is that you have all different kinds of scriptures that are saying um, different things, not contradictory things, but different things. And the task of theology is to describe all of that mm-hmm. uh, without losing any of the parts, right? But describe it in a coherent way. That's what the tradition is doing as well. 
uh, I'm, this may be getting into the weeds a little bit, but uh, one of the ways that I think it, that several of the chapters in the book and that I often describe the role of tradition uh, comes from a, a historian of the Reformation era and the late medieval uh, world, uh, Heiko Obermann. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a German German author, Heiko Obermann. Um, in his book, Forerunners of the Reformation, he distinguishes between two different understandings of tradition, um, which he calls, you know, cleverly enough, tradition one and tradition two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in, it, he argues that, that tradition one, which has roots in the early church, what was this view um, that saw the tradition as a guide to interpreting the Bible, right? As an as a interpretive guide to the Bible. And the Bible was seen as the sole written revelation of God. The tradition was simply... Uh, a guide to interpreting the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. As uh, the church um, developed, and he also says this has roots in the early church, uh, there arose another view of tradition, which he calls tradition two. And in tradition two, uh, the tradition was seen as a second source alongside the Bible. So both scripture and tradition together is kind of two different sources of the one revelation of God. And what he argues is that the reformers w- were not really casting out tradition entirely. They were instead recovering that first sense of tradition, mm-hmm. uh, not as giving us some new doctrines that we have to believe just because the Pope said so, right? Uh, but instead, the tradition is giving us an authoritative guide to interpreting the Bible. This is how Christians down through the centuries have interpreted the Bible. And that has a kind of weight and a kind of authority. It doesn't mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't mean that it's infallible. Uh, listen, I'm a Baptist, right? So I believe that there are some things that the church was were doing for a long time that that needed to be corrected by Scripture, right? So in theory, the tradition can be corrected by Scripture. People baptized babies for, you know, a long time before um, the early Baptists came along. Um, And so, yes, of course, the tradition is correctable. It's not infallible. But especially on those cardinal doctrines of the faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, uh, there's a a, a significant weight that the consensus of the church has on those doctrines. And Mm -hmm. that's what we refer to as the tradition. It's not giving us something new that we have to believe in addition to the Bible, but it's giving us the way that Christians have interpreted the Bible down Mm -hmm. through the centuries. If you would give us like a short, like 20 second definition of, because you touched on this, of what is a creed and what is a council, and then use that as your springboard to talk about probably the two most core doctrines that we find in creeds and councils, namely the Trinity and then Christology. Yeah. So a creed is just a statement of belief, right? It comes from credo, I believe. A statement of belief that is accepted by all Christians everywhere. And that way it's distinct from a confession, right? We, we as Southern Baptists have a confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message. And there have been other Baptist confessions of faith. A confession of faith is more de- denominationally specific, but a creed is a statement of belief that is accepted by all Christians everywhere. Um, and now, even if people aren't aware of those, right? I mean, I grew up in tradition, in a tradition, you know, kind of rural Southern Baptist churches where no one had ever heard of the Nicene Creed, right? Uh, but we did believe in the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. It lo- loosely defined, right? We still had the basic um, contours of the Nicene faith, even if people weren't weren't fully aware of that that creed. But uh, traditionally, in, at least in the Western tradition, there are three creeds from the ancient church that are accepted um, as so-called ecumenical, um, which is just a fancy way of saying worldwide, mm-hmm. accepted by everyone everywhere. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, which many traditions uh, still recite. Um, the Nicene Creed as well. Um, and then the so-called Athanasian Creed. Mm-hmm. 
those three creeds, again, kind of summarizing the basic uh, cardinal doctrines of the faith that, you know, again, even if people aren't familiar with them, I, I often tell my students, like, there is actually remarkable unity across the Christian faith. You know, people people say, well, there's so many divisions in the church, you know, no, we, no one agrees on anything. Well, actually, they do. You know, like you, could, you could take you know you could take a, a, a tradition as a sort of high church as 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 orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, and something as low church as you know we Southern Baptists or you Church of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that you look at those two traditions, very different in their worship expressions, mm-hmm. very different on some very important doctrines, right? I mean, I, I'm not trying to paper over the differences on on important doctrines related to salvation between those those two traditions. But at the same time, if you were to ask them, you know, how many gods are there? Both would say, well, one, there's only one God. Uh, well, how many persons exist in God? Well, there are three persons who exist in God. Uh, who are they? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are they, are, is there like a gradation of, of divinity in, among those three, or are they the same in divinity? Well, no, they're the same in divinity. They're the same God, right? They're just distinct in person, but they're the same in essence, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you, you begin to say, you know, you could ask questions about the incarnation. Is, is Jesus... Fully God? Well, yes, of course he's fully divine. Is he fully human? Yes, of course, right? I mean, he's not, he's not sort of part God, part human. He's not a hybrid. Uh, and so you begin to ask those questions. Now, the Orthodox tradition is going to, they're going to be reciting the Nicene Creed every, every week. And so they, they, they're going to have the, the, the language of the tradition more ready to hand. Uh, but the Baptists and the Church of God, who might not uh, be as familiar with those creedal statements, are still affirming the core of the doctrines, mm-hmm. right, of the Trinity and the Incarnation. So there actually is remarkable unity, despite our differences, mm-hmm. on what really matters, right, the, who God is and who Christ is and what God has done through the death, resurrection, and Christ to, to bring about salvation. That's good. And, and I think what I gained from your book, your argument's too strong a word. I don't like that word. Your, your encouragement, your hope, desire, along with the other authors, is that, the church, and you wrote particularly for the Baptist church, but I think it could go for any evangelical church, that it would be so beneficial if those things would be emphasized. Is that right? That's yeah. kind of what you you and your cohorts were thinking is it, it, it's not going to hurt us. We've already got this sort of general, broad, maybe sometimes vague, when we're talk, just talking about general laity, whatever. But if we could just stress and emphasize those things more, right? Um, it, it would ultimately benefit us. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm mainly thinking um, somewhat selfishly here, right? I mean, like, uh, as you begin to emphasize the the importance of the Christian tradition, I mean, I guess it kind of has two functions or two purposes. One is external, uh, so that we can express our unity with the broader body of Christ, other, other, other denominations and so on. But it also has this internal motivation as well, that, which is just to say, you know, to the degree that we are emphasizing the faith once for all delivered to the saints as it has been received uh, throughout church history, there, there are all kinds of treasures and riches that are opened up to us in our own faith experience. You know, like as we, as we read these, these old, old creeds and, and, and councils, as we read these ancient um, authors and medieval authors and the, the reformers and so on, that these are, are our treasures too, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, right. It's, it's sort of like, you know, you, you discover this, this chest in the attic that's filled with all of these toys that you didn't realize that you had. Uh, and you begin to, to experience like the fullness of the faith uh, in, a, in a unique way, I think. So it really is motivated, for me anyway, principally by a desire for renewing 
our own traditions, mm-hmm. you know. And I, th- I do think, even though we we focus here on Baptists, I think the the um, the the lessons are broadly applicable to evangelicals. Most evangelicals are at least Baptistic, right? Yes. You know, like I mean, in the Church of God, I take it you're not baptizing babies, right? No. Uh, you, you believe in believers only baptism, right? So in that sense, we we share a kinship in the free church tradition. Um, even if we it might have different expressions of worship and so on, uh, so in a sense we're all Baptists, right? <laughs> you know, like, right. I mean, if we're we not, were talking uh, about that yeah. before the episode. We're like, we're only like a hundred years old, and we came from Baptists and Methodists. We're like, this right. will be a really good episode because there's so much yeah, background because, there. Because for everybody, because we have people listening from all different backgrounds, mm-hmm. and, and and of course a lot of them probably have a Pentecostal background like us, but. The, the the thing we always talk about is there were no Pentecostals in America. There were Baptists and Methodists, and y- right. you know, so there is a a connection. Um, I, I I've got a lot of Baptist pastors who are my friends, and when, and when I was in Greer, um, one of the leading Baptist pastors in the town, he did a really unique thing. They did like a class on Sunday evening before the Sunday service. And he would bring in a different pastor from a different... So he brought in a Methodist preacher. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. He may have brought in a Catholic priest. I don't remember. He was wanting to just show... So he, he asked me to represent all of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. I thought, man, this is a heavy <laughs> weight on my shoulder. So I, I remember that... the snakes? Yeah, 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 he brought the snakes. Yeah, and the magic, the gold dust. Wherever, anyway, we don't handle snakes, by the way. That's a running joke. Um, number one question we get asked, by the way... Is do y'all handle oh, wow. snakes? Oh, you just yeah. it's uh, anyway. Yeah. It's a joke with us. Uh, I say no, we shoot them. But, <laughs> but so I brought our declaration of faith, mm. and I said, okay, here here's what I want to do. And I said, let's look at this. And and it starts. You know, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, naming the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. You know, and then we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. We be, and it just goes through. And as we read it, I said, if you look at it, I said you could lay this up against a Baptist. Declaration of Faith. I said, it's going to read identically. Mm. I said, we are fundamental evangelical. I said, just the only difference is we're Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. I said, we have a little bit more of a holiness emphasis, but you know, so there's a holiness element and then you know, the Pentecostal aspect. And they did. They were just, the, 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 the people in that room were amazed because I think they had these preconceived ideas mm-hmm. that there was a great divide. And I said, no. I said, we have the same theological background. I said, we have the same theological moorings. And I said, we have a whole lot more in common then mm. we do anything that would make us differ from right. each other. And so it's it's good that we talk about these things because you're right, the common ground. Um, I, I like the idea of bringing these kind of things because, um, you know, our listeners right now, I know I was trying to think of our listeners and thinking, man, you guys are kind of out there, <laughs> traditions and all. But, you know, people are more educated today. They have access to the Internet. They research. They study things. Um we, I don't want somebody on the internet trying to teach them the sound doctrines or the basic concepts, concepts that are found within the Apostolic Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasius Creed. I, I, I want to be able to say to them, "Let's mm-hmm. let's look at that. Let me let me show you that, and take responsibility of that for for my church." I mm-hmm. think it's a great idea. I yeah. think one of the things that it does is it's able to take these very lofty concepts and often really difficult and put in put them succinctly. To the point where if you say, I want to be an Orthodox Christian, even if your brain is still working through the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, you've been given the words by the church to profess rightly. 
And so you're able to express the truth, even if behind the scenes, you're still learning and being able to maybe in a conversation, break that down a little bit more. You've been given a common language. And I, and I think that's important for the well, unity is expressing that common language. I, I guarantee you, because I was a youth pastor for 10 and a half years back, you know, in ancient times, and you're <laughs> a student pastor now, and I get it now as a pastor, Dr. Stamps, where you have people, I mean, they're smart. And and they'll make an appointment and they'll say, or they'll just, if I'm out with them, they'll question. And they may actually question something that's deeper theology. So it isn't, and again, just depends on where you're at, I guess, in your context, in your congregation. But I mean, people today will ask you, you know, how how can how could Jesus be both God and man? How did that work? You know, and then and then we better as leaders have the the capacity to say something like, well, he was a hundred percent God, but he was also a hundred percent man. It was never the subtraction of de- deity; it was just the addition of humanity. You know, we better and we can take the terms in the creeds and use those, but 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 also we can take them and adapt them, which is what I love to do, and put it in our verbiage. Mm-hmm. You, you've already done that today. I've noticed in this podcast and. However, we have to communicate it, relate those doctrines, and because I, I, people want to know. And what's neat about something like the Nicene Creed, if you're asking, how can you know Jesus come from the Father and still be equal to the Father? They just give you some great language: true God from true God, light from light. Like because yeah, mm-hmm. you start getting hypostasis like and oosius <laughs> and 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 all those other oos that are in there. You know, people are going to be lost. And consubstantiation, you know, but we can take in those terms and say, well, let me explain that. And I think that's great because then it solidifies the faith of our people. Yeah. And I if think we're not, that's great. If we're not giving people something sturdy, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, you know, like a, a faith that's deeply rooted in history, that's been tested intellectually and spiritually, uh, then I think we're going to just lose a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, especially in, in, in a post Christian you know, American context as we increasingly become a kind of a post-Christian context um, in the West. Oh, I think we're there. That's my opinion. I think we're there. I mean, if we're just giving people fluff, you know, if we're just giving people, um, you know, an amorphous experience uh, or or a kind of just, you know, cultural um, identification, if we're not giving some people something that's sturdy and deep and rich and thick, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a deep expression of the faith that is both intellectually um, stable and spiritually challenging, then, you know, people have no reason to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, maybe in previous generations, people just stayed because that's what everybody did. You know, everybody everybody was a Christian. I mean, you know, that's how it was in Alabama. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is in South Carolina the same, right? Uh, but it, it, as we move into a, a situation where, people don't affiliate with the church and don't affiliate with Christianity, um, then if we're going to have something that's appealing, it has to be something that is different, right? And something that is substantial. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the, the degree, to the degree that we emphasize um, our, our rootedness in history, then we kind of have an anchor, right? That mm-hmm. as, as we move into this, this post-Christian kind of post-modern world where everything is truth itself is sort of up for grabs and, um, there's there's just a, a, a loss of stability. I think the the Christian faith, as it's expressed, obviously most fundamentally in Scripture, right? I'm not again, I'm not trying to supplant that, but as the Scriptures have been read and interpreted throughout history, that's going to be a ballast for a lot of people. I think that's good. I think mm, just good. kind of a, a last word before we we move on, and maybe you can hop onto this. 
uh, maybe some personal ways that you can root yourself, maybe in in history or in common language. Um, just taking the advice of Luther, I try and pray the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments every day, yep. which is just this very formalized, two of those are directly Scripture, and one comes from that sort of set way, not in my own words, of professing what it means to be a Christian and rooting myself in that. Right. Do you have any other advice of what maybe someone can be done with this episode and do to kind of develop that common language and rooting in history? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an excellent suggestion in itself, right? I mean, that traditionally Christian catechesis, which is just a fancy way of saying teaching Christians what, mm-hmm. what to believe, right? Teaching Christians the faith has has traditionally had that threefold um, format, right? Uh, the creed, the prayer, and the commandments, mm-hmm. um, which you know roughly correspond to the three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. This mm-hmm. is what we are to believe, the creed, which again, line by line, is just a summary of, script, of Scripture. Uh, what, what we are to hope for in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and then how, how we are to love uh, God and our neighbor, expressed mm-hmm. in the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I think that's that's a very helpful way. I mean, one thing that I've I've done uh, over. Wait a minute, that's too fast. You got to yeah. do that again. <laughs> I'm just I'm taking so, notes now. So, so you got the, the creed, the Lord's and, Prayer, and the and, and the Lord's Prayer, and the and the, the Ten Commandments, and the commandments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you used another. You used a C word, didn't you? The creed and something you know, that alliteration's got to work. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I don't know that I use one, but it, but, but, but yeah, but the, prayer. So you just yeah, said yeah. prayer. The, the creed, the prayer, and, and, so the the, yeah. and so the creed is the faith. What we believe. This is good stuff, y'all. We, we, we our listeners. Everybody good c- stuff. start taking notes start right taking now. Notes. <laughs> and then prayer is the hope. It's what we're asking God. We're then having, right. yeah, okay. And then the commandments is is how we love, love God, and love our neighbor. Y'all, that That's was good, good stuff right there, y'all. Yeah, we had so he he went well, he went so fast. I never I'm like, heard that before. Uh, you got to slow down. And let our folks just chew on that a little bit. It's good stuff, man. Yeah. No, I'm going to use that and not give you credit. Yeah, yeah. we're stealing that on <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, well, that's not original. Just, to me, but. Yeah, well, you got to say nothing yeah. is. <laughs> he borrowed it from somebody, yeah, folks. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's a good start. Yeah. I mean, there are other resources. Like you know, the the Book of Common Prayer, I think, has been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially in, in the English language, has been uh, a resource that many traditions have drawn on. Okay, now a lot of people have no idea yeah. what is that. Yeah. I mean, I've got it in my library. Yeah. But tell people what the well, Book of I mean, Common Prayer is. Most of you who are married probably heard uh, the, the wedding ceremony from the yeah. Book of Common, Common prayer, prayer when you got married, right? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here mm-hmm. in the presence of God and these witnesses and so on, right? That's language that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but the Book of Common Prayer was, was uh, just what it sounds like, right? a book of, of prayer for the people that was compiled um, in the 16th century by Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, who is the figure most uh, who, who we should associate with the English Reformation? Mm-hmm. The one that we most often associate with the English Reformation is, of course, Henry VIII and the, the marriages and all yeah. that. But there, so there was that political element going on. But there was actually a spiritual renewal going on in England during the Reformation uh, era. Wait a minute. So Cranmer was his right hand man. That's right. Yeah, Cranmer is a conflicted figure in many ways. I mean, right. it, you know, he you know recanted at one point and had oh to boy. recant his recantation. <laughs> so you know, like most of us, he's complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, we 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 don't need to we don't need to sort of have this uh, sanitized view of of church history, right? The people that we study in church history are complicated, just like we are, uh, and Cranmer's no exception. But Cranmer did do many great things for the church in England, uh, and one of those is he has bequeathed to us this prayer book, uh, which includes many great. Um, uh, prayers um, that I recite daily, prayers of confession and, and prayers of 
of Thanksgiving and 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 prayers for the government and prayers for our families. And, and most so on. of it is scripture, right? yeah. either a quotation or alluding directly to yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so some Anglican somewhere put it like this, that the Book of Common Prayer is just uh, the Bible set to worship, you know, <laughs> or the Bible set to prayer. And that, in a lot of ways that's true. Uh, and, you know, you can find not only copies of it, bound copies of it, but there's also apps these days, mm-hmm. right, that will actually go through the morning and evening prayer. Uh, so one that I recommend if you're interested in this, I've been using it for about a decade or more. Um, probably around, right, right around a decade, I started using one called uh, Mission St. Clair. Uh, and it's Clair, uh, C-L-A-R-E, Mission St. Clair, which you can find in the App Store that just sort of compiles the morning and evening prayer um, from the Book of Common Prayer. And the the ACNA, the more like conservative wing of like American Anglicanism, just released one literally called Daily Office. So if you want the okay. newest prayer book, yeah. if you're just into that, that's just an extra one. Right. And but, I mean, you know, I'm not an Anglican, right? And it's it's a bit ironic because the earliest Baptists were actually persecuted by the Anglicans <laughs> uh, for not using the prayer book, right? Because they 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 wanted the freedom not to use uh, the established church's prayer book. Mm-hmm. Is that the Anabaptists? Not the Anabaptists, right? Particular the, Baptists? The, these were, Baptist? Yeah, these were particular and general Baptists that I'm thinking of Some here. of you don't even, if you're yeah. Baptist, don't even know there were like all these different Baptists. Right, <laughs> that's right. Um, Originally, there was John the Baptist. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. He was the first. That's right. But anyway, so the, the, you know, it's a little bit ironic that a mm-hmm. Baptist would recommend that. Uh, but I think th- that's part of the freedom of being a Baptist is that we can say, you know, I don't want anybody telling me that my church has to use the prayer book, right? That's what the the original Baptists were arguing for that kind of religious liberty. Uh, but we may use the prayer book, right? We we have the freedom to, um, and and there's many great resources there that I've I've benefited from. Mm-hmm. That's good. You know what? I'm sitting here thinking, Evan, and, you were, and we're talking about the practical side. Now we're getting pragmatic, which we love to do after we talk theology. Is um, we sing it here? It, somebody somewhere got influenced by the creeds. But I believe in God our Father. Yeah. I believe in Christ the Son. Mm-hmm. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So here's Our the God story. is three in one. So yeah. I mean that's great that because we sing that here. A lot of churches sing that. That's. The story of that song is some high church like bishop or cardinal or somewhere in Australia tweeted at Hillsong and said, why don't you write a song on the Apostles' Creed? And they said, okay. And that's why it's literally (laughs) called like the creed, parentheses, this I believe. And Mm -hmm. you wonder how many people are singing this in churches and have no idea you're you're singing the Apostles' Creed. You're you're using a creed in your worship, which I think is, is what you guys are trying to say is, that's that's how we could do. Is that right? So yeah. there's a way because I know you talk about you can bring it into your mission, you can bring it into your worship. I know you. And we're going to get there in just a second. Okay, yeah. we're we're heading. Always there. get us ahead. We're heading there. <laughs> I'm there. We're All gonna right. make we're gonna make one stop before we get there. Um, before we are you good on time? Are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm good. Okay, um, this is just so much fun. But before we get there, let's talk about um, the interpretive principles of the great tradition. Namely, um, what are what is the method of interpretation of maybe the historic church? And I know that's a very broad statement going back 2,000 years. But maybe compare and contrast modern interpretation and maybe the interpretive principles of the past church. And how can we grow and learn from the way that they viewed Scripture? Mm, yeah, that's a great, great question. So very early on, really right, right out of the gates in the second century uh, with an author like Irenaeus, this was a kind of a question then as well. Like, how do we interpret what the apostles have said? How do we interpret the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament? Uh, and there were debates about that, right? Mm-hmm. And there were heretical views that arose in the second century that were interpreting 
the gospel differently. And um, so there was a question like, how do we know what the right interpretation is? And, and so one of the things that Irenaeus and others developed was this notion of the rule of faith or mm-hmm. what Irenaeus called the rule of truth, uh, which is, again, a kind of a summary of, of the apostolic doctrine, right? That God is one and three, Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus is true God, true man, that he uh, really died, he really rose again from the dead, he really ascended to the Father, he's really coming back. Uh, just the kind of basic contours of the faith that serves as a kind of guide to interpreting the scriptures, right? So that, you know, you can't go, you know, however you interpret any given text, it can't be be beyond those borders, mm-hmm. right? Of what is just the kind of basic, clear teaching of scripture. And of course, that rule of faith eventually came to be sort of standardized in the creeds. That's mm-hmm. what the creeds are. They're sort of written and recited forms of that rule of faith. And so, you know, ancient Christians, pre-modern Christians, were eager to interpret the Bible in line with the, that main message of Scripture. Uh, you know, modern interpretation, this is a long story, right, of how, how we get to where people are in the modern era. But, you know, in, in the Enlightenment era, especially uh, in the early modern uh, age, people began to say, well, let's just read the Bible like any other book. We'll read it like any other book of antiquity, just like we would read, you know, Plato or Homer or Virgil or whoever, right? We're just going to read it like any other book. We're not going to accept its its claims at face value. Uh, we're going to test its historical claims and so on. Um, and so you know, there's some some things that the modern methods of interpretation have brought us that are that are good, mm-hmm, right? I mean, the, sure. a, an awareness of historical context mm-hmm. and and you know the 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 text of scripture uh, is illumined in many ways by any, anyone who reads a modern translation of the Bible has benefited from mm-hmm. modern scholarship. Um, and so there, I'm not just trying to suggest there's nothing good in that, but but what it ended up doing was essentially um, de-spiritualizing the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Um, and stripping Christ from the Bible in many ways. Uh, whereas the ancient, uh, the sort of pre, pre-modern uh, biblical interpreters believe that the whole Bible was about Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's not, they weren't sort of searching for the right answer. They already knew the answer was given in Christ, mm. right? And the question was just sort of how do we get there, right? Yeah. In any given text, how do we make our way to see uh, how this text is a part of the unfolding revelation of God that culminates in Jesus Christ? Uh, and so a belief in the Bible's unity, uh, not sort of carving the Bible up in these diff- disparate parts and treating them like, like they're unrelated, but seeing the Bible as a whole, despite despite its diversity, right? It comes to us, you know, across 1,500 years, many different authors, three different languages. You know, the Bible's a, a richly diverse book. But in spite of all that, it's telling one major story from creation and new creation, uh, the climax and resolution in Jesus Christ, his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. And that serves as the guide, the rule, mm-hmm. by which we understand everything else. And that really, I think, is what, in many ways, we need to recover. Again, not 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 overlooking the ways that that modern critical scholarship has given us many great gifts, uh, but recovering a sense of of the unity of Scripture, how it's from Genesis to Revelation uh, mm-hmm. about God's revelation in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. I'm sorry, you the Bob Barker mic. I know, got the Bob Listeners, Barker mic. He does have a stand. And, and I've got this mic that looks like it's just, six inches on, dude. You just picked that mic up so fast. <laughs> <laughs> His dad looks like he's I'm on like a, a game, game show. show host. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> this happens in our podcast. That's great. Um, I forgot totally what I was going to say I'm right sorry. now. I mean, you totally just, I, whatever I was going to say, I had this really thought that he sparked, and I can't even remember what it is now. I'm totally lost. Keep thinking about on. it. I'll ask a question, and you just think about it. I don't even remember what, what it was now. <laughs> okay. I'm totally lost because I have Bob Barker in my head. <laughs> sorry, keep thinking about it. <laughs> So, okay, so while he's thinking about his question, my question to you is, so with that in mind, we know the early church sees, a, sees the Scriptures as really one author, the Holy Spirit, all about Jesus. Oh, I know what I was going to say now. <sighs> when you're 54, you have to just say it when you think about okay, it. No, what it's, I want to go back because what he was saying, you and I have had this as we have had these now years of talking theology, is it is amazing this is so simple, but it's just kind of, you, you know, you're our guest today, but our listeners are you, they've, is how many times you and I talk about it after the, how many times we end up going back to Genesis? Mm-hmm. One, two, three. Like mm-hmm. if you don't have the first three chapters of Genesis, the rest of the Bible makes no sense. Right. I mean, it be, because it lays the foundation and, and, well, uh, let's restress the unity. All of, of the it. Scriptures. And in the Proto-Evangelium or Evangelion, I don't to say it right, but I'm going to put a V in there. And and the, all the way through, you're right, Christ mm-hmm. is there. Mm-hmm. And then he goes all the way through to Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that needs to be taught. I mean, yeah. those are the kind of things that people just miss out on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're saying that that's how the early church, they had that more of a holistic mm-hmm. view yeah. from cover to cover. You have to take the whole narrative right, and not just pick and parcel it yeah. out. And especially important for Irenaeus was uh, Paul's words in Ephesians 1, where he talks about uh, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, mm-hmm. right? That The Greek word for plan there um, is, is translated economy, right? His, God's, God's dispensation, the way that God right. is ordering his affairs in history. Um, the whole purpose of history, according to Paul, is to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's that unified plan of God that gives us then the 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 standard, the the sort of rule uh, by which we understand any particular text. Mm-hmm. It's all about that, right? That's what Irenaeus is emphasizing. And, no, oh, and, and well, yeah. I'm just saying. And then one of the issues I have problems with, and you kind of touched on it earlier, is and it sounds like I'm nitpicking now, but I mean, we do this on this episode. We're we're really nice on this episode, but the old guy has concerns because you have people, you have guys pastoring churches, some very, very large churches with a lot of influence. They're writing the books. They're the podcast people listen to that. And I'm not being mean, but they don't even have a degree. They don't, they haven't even been to seminary or some of them have been to seminary, but their preaching is hardly doctrinal or it's very shallow and that that's a deep concern for me because that is that is getting away from this tr- tradition you're talking about mm-hmm. historically again the church has preached the doctrines even the bible says that. i mean paul told timothy if you're a young preacher he would if paul was here today he would say to you preach sound doctrine mm-hmm. don't get off on fads and series on three things and how you can be a better life you and, and, yeah, yeah life mm-hmm. advice and self help preach the word cuz mm-hmm. people can get that anywhere you know, and exactly. probably better than I can tell it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mean, you, you, I, I listen to self help podcasts and read self help books, and that that can be really beneficial, right? But somebody else can give them that, right? The church has been given a mission and a task that only the church can do, mm-hmm. which is to pl- proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? Mm-hmm. And so, whatever life advice we give, and and and, the, and of course, preaching and teaching should be relevant, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like we, we, you know, if pre- the minute that preaching becomes just like a cold, stale lecture. Uh, then that's not going to benefit people either. 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ is anything but boring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like this, you know, uh, you know, one, one author uh, put it put it like this: that the, the the gospel is a drama full of rich intrigue. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it, it's, like it, it, it's impossible to be boring, right? If we if we understand it, if it's if it's grasped. If we grasp it, and if we and if it has grasped us, then it can't be boring. Yeah. So that when we stand up to proclaim a God who is e- eternally self sufficient, uh, and in in the eternal bliss of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who in the fullness of time God the Father sent God the Son uh, to to become a human and to live and to die and to be raised in order to rescue fallen humanity from the power of sin and death and the mm-hmm. devil, and God has That's given great. us uh, His Holy Spirit. In order to equip us for for mission and for holiness, uh, I mean that that story, that God and that story of the gospel can't be boring, yeah. right? And so preaching those doctrines um, has to come alive first in our own hearts, yes. right, as preachers and teachers, and then of course it's going to spill out in mm-hmm. our in our teaching. It can't it can't be something that's irrelevant. Uh, but if we just start with here are three steps, you know, three steps to a better marriage, or you know, ten steps to financial security, or whatever, some of that may be helpful and you know, small group Bible study or Sunday school or whatever, but the preaching of the of the word has to be the preaching of the gospel, yeah. right? Which is the God of the gospel, the triune God, and it is Jesus Christ and him crucified um, at the centerpiece. I remember in graduate class, I took them preaching and there's a couple of things, and one of them was in, in everything, and I think it was that book by Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. He wrote, wrote them preaching, and I think I'd give it to you, but even Tim Keller pointed out that whatever you do, ultimately, your preaching should center around Christ, mm-hmm. whatever it is, whatever even Old Testament story. There ought to be a way, if you're preaching on Elijah and the fire coming down, there still ought to be a way to bring it back to Christ. Yeah. I, another thing I remember is the very similar to what you were saying, and my professor, he said, uh, there's never anything wrong with the message. If the if the sermon didn't go well, he said, there's nothing wrong with the message. It's mm-hmm. always the messenger. <laughs> it's always going to be your yeah. fault. But I know personally my favorite kind of preaching is preaching doctrine. I try to tell young preachers, your best preaching is doctrine. Mm. If you preach doctrine right, and, and and Dr. Stamps knows he's in a room with a couple of Pentecostals here today, folks, but you know we get excited, we get exuberant, and we love the anointing of God when we preach. But my favorite preaching is doctrine. You, you start preaching about the resurrection or any any sound doc, justification by faith, regeneration, the adoption by, you start going into those, doctrines, mm-hmm. anything in soteriology, it ought to get people excited because mm-hmm. there's a, once you get the doctrinal part there and you show the found, then you get the practical side and say, how has that happened to your life? How has that benefited you? People will mm-hmm. say, praise the Lord. I, you know, I didn't That's under, good. you're couching it in terms, pastor. I may not, but praise the Lord. I understand. That's what God's done mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. And it, I heard one preacher put it like this, that the 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 doctrine that we learn in our mind is is the kindling for the fire of our hearts. Oh, I like that. You know, mm-hmm. I like that. Like you could yeah. try to manufacture a fire, but you need you, you can't do that, right? You need you need the wood, right? You need right. wood and mm-hmm. oxygen and a spark. Uh, but if you don't, if you're not constantly feeding the heart with truth, right? Then eventually it just smolders out, you know. And it's mm-hmm. the truth that's going to continue to kindle that fire. That's good. That's good. I like to close out this little section with just asking. Now that we've seen that, that the Bible is a complete unit and it's it's all building up to Christ, I know you have to answer this very quickly. What advice do you have to a layperson opening up their Bible? They know the Gospels are all about Jesus. That's easy. They know the, the rest of the New Testament is all about Jesus. He's conf- constantly referenced. They open up to 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, Micah, whatever. You just name it. 
what in the world is going on? Why is this not just the history of a random nation and then Jesus shows up? How do we practically see Christ in all of the scriptures? I know you're going to try and do that in like three minutes, but (laughs) where's a start to seeing Christ, especially in the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I think you have to start by understanding the the major storyline of the Bible, right? Understanding that the Bible is not just a bunch of disparate stories, but mm-hmm. it's one story: a God story of creation, uh, the story of the fall, God's story of redemption that is unfolding in a promissory way in Israel's history, and then it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's now being proclaimed by the church to the ends of the age, and one day. Uh, one day Christ is going to come back and make all things new, right? Mm-hmm. That that basic plot line of the Bible is where you start, right? Mm-hmm. So that now you're 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 plotting, you're positioning each of these stories in that unfolding drama from creation to new creation. The other thing that I think will help people is develop developing an understanding of typology, mm-hmm. right? And that's another you know uh, technical term I guess we're throwing out there, but but basically uh, most Christians already understand what it is, right? That there are certain, because the, the New Testament itself uses this language, that, that there are certain types and shadows in the Old Testament that reach their fulfillment in the substance of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So that Adam is a type of Christ, Paul says. Uh, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is a type of the true sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are these, these patterns, these pictures, these... these um, sort of previews mm-hmm. in the Old Testament of, of what was going to come in Jesus Christ. And there are all kinds of these, right? There's uh, the prophets, priests, kings, the temple, the tabernacle, the promised land. Uh, you know, again, the, the sacrifices. Um, all, all of these things in the Old Testament are sort of giving us um, this visual uh, and verbal uh, language so that whenever Christ comes, we'll be able to understand it. Oh, mm-hmm. Jesus is like the priest, but better. Mm. Jesus is like the sacrifice of the Old Testament, but better. Mm-hmm. I Jesus, am the light of the world. There you go. So, you have, so that's the yeah. light in the temple. I am the bread of life, the showbread. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Right. And so learning that that discipline of, of, of being on the lookout for these types in the Old Testament. Um, now, you know, I teach hermeneutics. So, I, you know, I often get the question, well, like, can't you take that too far? You know, where you're just sort of looking for Jesus under every rock. Uh, well, you should be looking for Jesus under every rock. Right? I mean, that, go, go, go read, uh, just as some homework here. I'm a professor, so I give homework. Go read 1 Corinthians 10 and see how Paul found Jesus under a rock in the, the Old Testament. The rock follows him. Exactly. Am I wrong? Am I right? Yeah, he said the rock that moves, a moving rock. You argued with me the last time I brought it up. We talked about rock. that. Follows him, am I yeah. right? That's right. Yes, yeah. that's right. Well, it so is. It's approved. It's, I said the rock. It's Jesus. No, you said the rock didn't fall. We're, I'm going to pull the clip up, <laughs> Coleman. Pull the clip up. <laughs> but I, just one last thought on that. Um, uh, Robert Smith, who's a professor of homiletics at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, uh, came and gave a lecture when I was in seminary uh, on preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And somebody posed that question to him in the Q and A, like, "Can't you go too far? Right? Isn't can't you just go too far in trying to find Jesus?" And he put it like this. I'll never forget it. And I always tell my students this. He said, I would rather see Jesus where he isn't than miss him where he is. That's, that's good. good. That's and good. that's, that's really the posture good. that I think we want to bring to the Old Testament. Is we, we are on the lookout mm-hmm. for how all of these stories, all of these figures, all of these um, you know, people and places and institutions in their own unique ways were preparing us for the coming of Jesus Christ. Mm, that's good. That's wow. really good. Good stuff. Let's move on. Um, 
let's talk about worship. So this is what you were you were bringing us towards as we were discussing creeds and confessions to to that worship. Um, let's break down how does the great tradition differ from modern worship. How should it inform our modern worship? And then just go ahead and just when you're ready, just kind of slide in the order and it says baptism and the Lord's Supper into that conversation on worship. What does that look like? And what's your argument for ushering in uh, the great tradition into our worship today? Yeah, oh, man, that's a huge question. But, um, <laughs> but I love it because I think it, that that's really where the rubber meets the road is like all this stuff can't just remain like in academic textbooks, mm-hmm. right? It has to, it has to affect the, the spiritual life of the church, uh, especially in terms of the gathered worship. You know, I come from a tradition, uh, the Southern Baptist tradition that uh, emphasized what, what uh, one historian of worship has called the frontier liturgy, right? Liturgy is just a fancy word of saying sort of the order of worship. Uh, and on, on the American frontier where Baptists and Methodists were thriving, um, the, the order of worship was very much geared towards um, evangelism, right? The eva- kind of evangelistic thrust. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you know, you had song, a song service um, and then a sermon that was mostly, again, oriented towards evangelism and then an altar call. And that, that was kind of the three parts of, you know, mm-hmm. what's been called the frontier liturgy. And that's still very much a part of Southern Baptist life today. And, and I think probably American evangelicalism more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot to, to, be, um, to be thankful for about that. I mean, I, I don't think that we should look, you know, look down on that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think there's a lot uh, that was right about that, right? Uh, songs of worship and praise, a very biblical, uh, you know, emphasis. Certainly been a part of, of the Baptist tradition as well, even hymn writing and that sort of thing. Um, and then m- making the appeal to believe in Jesus Christ and giving people an opportunity to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's all very good and right and biblical. And we should, we should thank God that, you know, if we're a part of traditions like that, we should thank God for that, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, but that's not exactly, you know, that doesn't map exactly onto historic liturgies, historic, you know, Christian worship, uh, which was, um, you know, certainly there's some, there's some overlap here, but the historic, the historic Christian liturgy, you know, usually began with a scriptural call to worship, included the corporate confession of sin, um, along with private confessions of sin, uh, the assurance of pardon from the minister, so the assurance of God's forgiveness in the gospel. Um, it certainly included, you know, songs of worship, but but especially the reading of the word. Mm-hmm. So several scripture readings in every service. Old and New Testament. Old and New Testament, Psalms. Um, and so, you, you know, you have lots of scripture reading, um, a sermon on on the word, um, the the uh, the creed recited together, and then the Lord's Supper celebrated together, uh, and at the end uh, a benediction and a commissioning of the people to go out. Um, and and there's a lot of that. I think we still retain. I mean, that's not totally unfamiliar. I think to us um, as more low church evangelicals, but there's still some elements that we've missed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, especially lots of scripture reading. Mm-hmm. You know, it's ironic to me. Um, some more liberal denominations uh, who, are, who have sort of still retained this litur- more liturgical historic form of worship end up reading more scripture in their <laughs> services, even though they may not believe in the infallibility of those scriptures, uh, yeah. than a lot of evangelical and Baptist churches do who do mm-hmm. believe in, in, in uh, the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. 
And so I just don't want to be outdone by the mainline churches here, yeah. right? I mean, let's include more scripture reading, mm-hmm. more prayers, um, the Lord's Supper every week. I mean, that's something I think a lot of people is new to a lot of people, right? Because we, we, most of us grew up in traditions where uh, you did it four times a year, you know? Um, and there's, you know, historical reasons for why we, why that's been the practice. But in my, in my view, it, it, my, my reading in the New Testament, um, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was weekly. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say, well, won't that get boring? You know, won't that become rote and routine? Don't we want to sort of save it so it'll be more special? It's funny that no one ever says that about the sermon. <laughs> uh, no one ever says that about songs. Uh, no is, one. Is there a danger that it would not be boring, but that that the routine? I'm asking mm-hmm. just because somebody might be thinking this. I'm not asking for me. I'm just. I'm sure. probably me. That it that it might diminish the. I hate to say the sacredness of it, or the value of it whatever word you want to put in there. Is that possible? I mean, I suppose it's always... How do you respond to that? I suppose it's always possible to take things lightly. Um, But I I can just say from my own experience, um, the the last uh, two two churches we've been a part of have taken it at least more frequently than than quarterly. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the last two churches in particular have taken it weekly. Um, I I find that it's... It's just the it's sort of just the opposite. Like I, I, I find myself longing for this multi-sensory reminder of the gospel mm. every week. I'm not only gonna hear the, the gospel preached from the pulpit, but I'm gonna literally touch and smell and taste mm. the gospel uh, in in the Lord's Supper so that I miss it, right? If I ever for some reason am not you know not there for church, um, I miss having that that weekly encounter with Christ that is really good. in the mm-hmm. supper. And, good. and there's that some things that, that actually should become routine, mm-hmm. right? There's some things that are good for us that should become routine. That doesn't mean that it becomes meaningless, but, um, you know, we ought to brush our teeth every day. You know, that, <laughs> I, I don't wait until I have like some moving experience of dental hygiene uh, to brush my teeth. You know, I just know, or, or I, I eat every day, uh-huh. you know? I mean, there are seasons of fasting for sure. But Four times a year wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't brushing not, your teeth. Brushing your teeth. <laughs> I mean, and so really the things that are most important for our nourishment mm-hmm. and for our health, we recognize that, that it actually should become a habit. It should become habitual. Yeah. Uh, and, it's in, and it's in becoming habitual that actually begins to take on a, a, a new depth and a new uh, benefit to us. And, and so- Dr. Stamps, do we not do it in evangelicalism because- it goes back to the Protestantisms and we're trying to avoid being high church or or going all the way back to what the Catholics did. Is that where this stems from? What, yeah, what, yeah. What's our, what's our, what's pushing us here? What's our deal? Yeah, what's right. going I on? Mean, <laughs> if I recall correctly, historically, I think Zwingli in the Reformation era right. uh, made it quarterly. Um, it's kind of because it had become, because the, the Catholic view of, of the sacrament had become so superstitious. Mm-hmm. Right. That he wanted to sort of say, listen, you know, if we have the preached word, we have Christ, right? So that we 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 don't we shouldn't think that that there's something magical that's taking place. They in believe the in like what ex opere operato, just being in the presence of that's right. the Eucharist. So, yeah, just just you can be go, a sinner and it doesn't matter. Just going through the motions, you're yeah. you're still receiving grace, right? Um, and I mean that's a bit of a caricature of the Roman yeah. Catholic view, but it's not far, right? And, <laughs> and so I think that that that's what Zwingli was trying to avoid was a kind of superstitious or magical mm-hmm. view. Um, well, then you had transubstantiation and consubstantiation, right. and they were saying it was becoming the little body of Christ, which the yeah. Reformation said 
there was a pushback, obviously. Yeah, against I mean, that. There, there are differing views in the Reformation on that. But um, for those who are listening, they they were actually saying that actually be, the blood, the the juice or wine actually became the body, the blood of Christ, and the bread actually turned into the, that was the body Catholic of Christ view, yeah. as yeah. you were ingesting it. And that's how extreme it got. Right. Yeah. Right. And and Luther's view is 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 closer to that uh, than than the Reformed view that that Calvin and Zwingli held uh, that didn't locate Christ's presence in the elements of the bread and the wine. I, I think both Luther and Zwingli still held that Christ is present. Right. Mm-hmm, the, the, right. The, the mediator uh, in his in his divinity and humanity is present to the people of God by the Spirit as we partake of this meal in faith. But it's, but his body and blood are not sort of locally present in in the elements of the bread and the wine. But that doesn't mean you know to lose that that Catholic view of the of the supper doesn't mean that the supper means nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's um, one one what a, one theologian put it like this that you know if if the Catholics believe in real presence, a lot of Baptists end up believing in the real absence of Christ in the Lord's <laughs> supper. Um, you know, it's like the one place in all of creation where Christ is not is in this meal that we take together once a quarter. Yeah. Uh, and if we have that kind of diminished view of the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. it's no wonder we don't want to do it more, right? But if we believe that this is a means of God's grace, yeah, right. that God has ordained this, that's why we call them ordinances, right? As Baptists, we call them ordinances because yes. we believe that that Christ himself has ordained that this is something we do yes. along with baptism. Right. Um, and that this is the place, in a sense, that he's promised to meet with us, mm, right. right? I mean, of course, Christ is everywhere as as God, but but he has promised to meet with us as the mediator, the God-man. Is the, the bread that we break not a participation in the body of the Christ? special exactly. manifestation. Yeah. Is the, is the, the cup that we drink not a participation in the blood of Christ? Right. That's Paul. So, yeah, the language yeah. from 1 Corinthians, the, the, the Greek word there is koinonia. It's a sharing of life mm-hmm. with Christ as we take of this meal together. So that has has historically been the centerpiece of of worship, of Christian worship. I have another thought here too, as we're talking about it, maybe we're guilty, Dr. Stamps, because we've ritualized it mm. instead of allowing it to be a living, vibrant experience. Right. And I know for us here, uh, we're guilty of the four times a year, so you've got me under conviction. <laughs> but, I wasn't going to say anything. But, <laughs> yet, I, but when we do celebrate the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, Communion, it is a it is a celebration. I mean, it is a spiritual. It should be a Thanksgiving. It a is Eucharist. a spirit, right, but yeah. it's a spiritual event. That's I mean, we sing. There's a there, there's the moving of God. There's a deep sense, an awareness of Christ and what He's done for us. People will weep. Sometimes it's celebratory, and people will rejoice. And to me, that's the way it should right. happen. Where, you, like you said, I think that's what you're saying yeah. is. But if we ritualize it and we're just going through the motions, that's that doesn't work for singing or anything else. When you so deaden it that it's like, just to be clear, nothing is happening right. here. Just right. remember, right. that's right. what you're saying. It can just steal the moment where God's coming to meet with his and, people. And I love that you talked about the, the grace and the special grace. And, the, and I, I know Bobby Johnson, who was my pastor when I was a young man, and I'm learning I had such a great tutor, man. And he mm. he would use that verbiage. He I think he had a Presbyterian background. So he had some of that high church influence, even though he was a Pentecostal pastor of a large church. He, he had that that influence, and he would use that verbiage, and I loved it because it influenced me. Because he would talk about that grace moment that would happen mm-hmm. when when you were taking communion, mm-hmm. and but you know I'm I'm thinking too uh, the 
is a Pentecostal. So here's another thought that I had. I don't know we had to wrap this up, but so often, and you know, I wrote a book on this, or a book on the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first chapter I talk about this. They saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as persons. Okay, one God, but three persona. So they treated, I think, the Holy Spirit differently than we do today because we we know all about God the Father. We teach our kids what used to be flannel graph Jesus. <laughs> I heard flannel graphs are coming back, which is so hilarious. Did you know that? That's hilarious. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit was that, who is that guy? And yet the hymn writer said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, all ye heavenly hosts. And then we sing this in our church and we don't even realize we're doing praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't even realize that praise ought to be given mm. to God and we and we then have those persona. So we we praise the personas and yet knowing it's one God, there's that mystery. See how we always go back to the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Every episode we seem to come out. But again, that would be where there could be more of an emphasis on not just Christology, but pneumatology and the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and, and who he is because my Lord, we're living in the in this church age where the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us mm-hmm, and makes right. him alive in our heart by faith and empowers us, as you said. Yeah. Am I right? right. Kind yeah. of and this may, maybe this is um, um, some added motivation for your Pentecostal listeners to recite the creed, which is another part of you know um, historic Christian worship is is corporately declaring what we believe. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, but the third article of the, of the Nicene Creed is on the on the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? And it's this rich confession uh, that that I I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. That's right. Um, you know who who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, mm-hmm. and who spoke by the prophets. I mean, what yeah, a, that's, what a that's powerful, that's man. Good. Just listen to you say yeah. that. Yeah. You're right. That's that's powerful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, obviously, that's the heritage of all the church, but maybe maybe especially like the the Pentecostals who can say, yes, this is this is what's often been neglected. It's mm-hmm. third article theology, right? The third article that we've often neglected mm-hmm. uh, of a belief in the the Spirit, the one who who is the Lord and who gives life and who should be worshipped and glorified. And people mm-hmm. are say, what? He's the Lord? Yeah, but the Bible says now the Lord is the Spirit, that's and right. where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And we love to quote that second part. Now the Lord is the Spirit, yeah, and which is that union mm. with Christ. And anyway, now we're getting in. This has been good. Gosh, is- I want to just go on forever. All right, I'll try. I'll try and rein it in a little bit because I do want to keep going on forever. Um, as we conclude worship, you're a Baptist, so I have to ask you about baptism. So we've talked about the Lord's Supper. What play? What role does baptism play? Um, kind of uniting that with the Christian tradition in. Uh, the life of the church and in worship. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, this is one place where Baptists and, and other Baptistic evangelicals have de- have parted ways with the tradition, at least on one part of mm-hmm. baptism, namely that we only administer it to professing believers, not not to the children of believers as other traditions have. And so we might think, well, this is one area where we don't have any, you know, anything to learn. And I don't think that's true. I mean, one of my favorite chapters in the book actually um, is the one written by my my uh, co-editor Matt Emerson on um, baptism and mm-hmm. on the different ways that the earliest Baptists, while certainly are, they're 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 um, adapting and 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 in their view correcting you know the practice of baptism by applying it only to believers, that doesn't mean that they were rejecting entirely the theology of baptism that came before. And so I, that's you know one of my favorite 
parts of the book is is remembering that baptism you know we have a lot to learn from the tradition on baptism as well it's interesting to me that the for baptists the 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 ordinance the practice uh, from which we get our name is often downplayed in the <laughs> yeah. baptist tradition like you mentioned earlier like the way, even the way that we uh, introduce the ordinance or the sacraments and, and sacraments, by the way, it was a is a word that we sometimes you know shy away from because we associate it with Roman Catholicism or whatever. But actually, the earliest Baptists were perfectly comfortable using the word sacrament. Mm-hmm. It was used in by other Protestant groups at the time, and so it's not as if ordinance and sacrament were seen as as kind of competing terms mm-hmm. among the earliest Baptists. They were just highlighting different parts of what these practices are. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the 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 ordinance um, of baptism, we kind of we kind of introduce it by saying. You know, this is just water. Nothing happening here. You know, this doesn't save you. This doesn't do anything. I don't even know why we're doing this. Other than it's in the Bible. I mean, it, we, in this, we do the same thing with the Lord's Supper too, right? Yeah. This is not really the body and blood of Christ. Nothing happens here. We're just remembering something. Well, if it's just a memory, like well, I, I can remember without the aid of these elements, right? Yeah. There's something unique happening in the in mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper. Um, again, not that the elements become the body and blood of Christ. I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, but that Christ is present here in a unique way. The same thing with baptism. Like, it's not nothing, right? Just because, as Baptists anyway, we don't believe that baptism is regenerative. We don't think that baptism actually makes you born again. In fact, we we believe that only those who have already been born again by faith, by the Holy Spirit, are are the proper participants in baptism. But at the same time, that doesn't mean baptism does nothing, right? Baptism, too, along with the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the Word and prayer, is a means of grace, mm-hmm. right? It actually confirms to the believer um, the the their union with Christ, mm-hmm. right? So so that it, that's why very often and most often in the New Testament we see baptism follows immediately upon faith, mm-hmm. right? Because it's seen as a part of that complex of events that's involved in a person's conversion to Christ. I don't know. For many people, they they felt something like that whenever they they were baptized, right? They felt that they were born again, that oh, they were born anew. That makes me think of Yeshika. The last time we had baptisms were very, you know, spiritual experiences. Right. Like Our baptisms say. are. I mean, they're celebration experiences, and, and it's by spir- God. it's spiritual. Yeah. yeah, like you feel the presence of God. There's a. It's not a. Again, it's not a ritual. Yeah. It's seen as something that God is, a, is there. A God. That's what you're saying mm-hmm. is that right. it's a God event. It's not just you know church events should be God events. Right. And it's not. So it's not just. The prof- it's not just the profession of faith. It mm-hmm. is a profession of faith. I mean, that, I firmly believe that as a Baptist. Like, it, it can't be done to someone who's sort of passive and unwilling. I, mm-hmm. I believe that baptism is a profession of faith. But it is also, and I would say primarily even, it's God saying something. It's not mm-hmm. just the believer saying something. It's not just the church saying something. It is both of those things too. But it's God saying something, just as the voice came from heaven uh, at the River Jordan, I was thinking this the is same my beloved thing. son with yeah, whom I am well And the Spirit and came and down. And the Spirit descends, right? Yeah, it can that, be a spiritual experience. Exactly. And, and so that God is pronouncing over us, as we are hidden in Christ, the very same declaration that he pronounced over his own beloved son. And he's yeah. giving us in this mm. moment this union with Christ, this gift of the Spirit, this confirmation. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, something is happening. God is there. It's not just, it's not just me saying something, but God is saying something about me in my baptism. And so that's not foreign to the Baptist tradition. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you're just going too Catholic. No, I mean, if you read the earliest Baptists, that's the view that they held about baptism. Uh, They didn't think that baptism was merely a symbol. Mm -hmm. It is a symbol. It is a sign, but it's a sign that's rich with with supernatural significance. 
that God is present. And God, I mean, if we think about it as a as sort of a, dra- a dramatic moment, a drama, God is the primary actor on the stage in mm-hmm. baptism and the Lord's That's Supper. That's good. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not the professing believer. We, we're, we have a... a um, a kind of supporting cast role, right? But God is as the starring role. God in Christ, it's by God his doing something to you. That's right. That's right. Wow. God is is, a, is is affirming you in, mm. in your union with Christ, so that we can then look back on it. And you know, Luther often said, you know, remember your baptism, mm-hmm. right? And I often joke with my Pado Baptist friends, those who believe in infant baptism. That only the Baptist can actually remember the baptism. You know? like, uh, I can literally remember my baptism. Yeah, and I think there's some benefit to that. I, I mean, I say that, you know, somewhat jokingly, but well, but, well, but we, I really mean it, right? I can literally remember, remember my baptism. It. And we have people, and I encourage it, who were baptized as children and not as infants, right? But at a at a at an age seven, eight, whatever, and that's fine. It is becoming very common that when we have our water baptismals, we have adults who come and say, can I be rebaptized where now? It didn't mean anything then to mm-hmm. me. It was, I know it was meaningful, but but I'm really serving the Lord now. Can I? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's, have that experience again. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's like you said, now they say, now I can remember it. And I remember it as something that was a true expression of what Christ has done in my life. And it seems to have a tremendous impact on people. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of cases we probably should delay baptism um, so we can avoid that, you know, like where, you know, you might have have a Sunday school class or a vacation Bible school where everybody's getting baptized because their friends are. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, you're a, probably right, yeah. like big camp baptisms right. and things like that. And, and I'm not saying that, that you know, very very young children can't be converted. I, I, I was baptized at seven, but I remember it, you know, and it was it was meaningful to me. Um, and but, sometimes it is for kids, right. and that's and I, and I put that onus back on the on the parents, right? Uh, and tr- the pastors, you know. Like, it, I mean, there, there yeah. should be some some discernment involved, especially with children who grew, who are growing up in Christian homes. Um, it just takes more care to make sure they're not just sort of doing this because their friends are, and and I think it will make it more meaningful for their faith journey if it's delayed for a time. Now, that's a pastoral decision. I'm not I'm not suggesting like a particular age or. Or anything like that. Well, but, I draw, and I don't mind saying, I mean, we say things on here, but I, I draw the line at five. I said, if they're five or younger, I'm not going to do right. it. I mm-hmm. said, now it's no longer about you, it's about me. Mm-hmm. I cannot in good, con- and I, and sometimes I feel uncomfortable from, like you said, but again, I put that burden back on the right. parents, and if they can say to me, my child understands, then I say, okay, well then, uh, yeah, you're you're their primary caregiver mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and right. spiritual. But yeah, I think you have to draw lines. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, well, to keep the um, integrity of it. Yeah, exactly. I'll ask you one final question. This is the most general, broad question of them all. I'll let you go. Simply put, after this whole hour and 20-minute conversation, what is evangelical Baptist Catholicity, and how can every Christian work towards practicing it? Mm. You did hit him with a big <laughs> This is a summary yeah. wrapping up statement. It yeah. can be as simple it's and easy. To, I mean, it, it's, it was good. We haven't really talked about this term Catholic. Um and I know that's that is is scary for a lot of people because mm-hmm. they think what you mean by that is Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. right? But the word Catholic, uh, the older sense of the term, um, I, I'm going to interrupt you. I always say Catholic with a little c. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's yeah. how so I always do it. Catholic yeah. with a little c. c. Tell yeah. them what that means. Yeah. So, so it just, it, I mean, literally, it just means through the whole, which basically just is an emphasis. Again, it goes back to the Nicene Creed. I believe in one holy Catholic 
an apostolic church. Mm-hmm. So the is em- it fair to say you, the universal church? Is that U- fair? Universal is getting at it, right? I think that's, that's, that's you know, it's, it's part of it, right? But it, the idea is that it's, it's sort of the, the faith that's worked through the whole body of Christ. That's good. Um, and so that that's what we mean when we talk about Catholicity. It's not the Roman Catholic Church, um, although there are believers in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not I'm not suggesting that they're excluded from this, but it's not merely yeah. the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but it's the whole the whole body of Christ. Yeah, we're not talking denomination. We're talking about believers. That's mm-hmm. right. I and mean, it goes back to what we started with this idea of the universal church um, that Christ died for the church. Um, that's what we mean by the by the Catholicity of the church. And I, and I'm just eager for Baptists, because Baptists have very often been um, accused of, sometimes rightly, being sectarian. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're just, we think we're the only ones who have it right. Uh, we're, you know, started our own thing. We're cut off everybody else. Um, and sometimes that's a fair criticism. But I want to say that doesn't have to be the case, right? That Baptists can position ourselves, um, both historically and theologically, within the whole body of Christ across space and time. Uh, it's evangelical in the sense that uh, we're emphasizing that we are conservative Protestants, right? We're not, I mean, there, there, there have been some groups of, of Baptists who have emphasized Catholicity who come at these things from a different theological perspective who, who might be more moderate to liberal. What we're saying is that, that you know, sort of um, Southern Baptist inerrancy believing conservative uh, evangelical Baptists have just as much a claim to the Christian tradition as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, one of my one of our, our our heroes in this work is Timothy George, the, the founding dean of Beeson Divinity School, um, and he puts he often puts it like this: Why should the Catholics have all the fun? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's uh, awesome. You know, we have we have like the riches of the Christian tradition of of you know liturgical worship of the sacraments. Uh, why should the Catholics have all the fun, right? I mean, th- yeah. this is our heritage as well. So we're not losing our commitment, our, our, our theological commitments as Baptists. Uh, we're not losing our, our theological bearings as evangelicals, those who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and the necessity of conversion and, and those sorts of things. But we believe that holding on to those um, convictions, we can also uh, uh, appropriate yeah. uh, the full riches of the church. And so that's what we're after in this. And so one way I think you can... Foster that is to buy our book. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there we go. I was waiting uh, for it. Shameless yeah. plug. I, love it. I was going <laughs> to plug it if he did it. We yeah, were going to plug right. it. Yeah. But, but in, all, in all seriousness, I mean, the, the royalties on these things probably aren't very good. I don't know. I, I haven't looked at that sort of thing. But we, this is a book that that Matt and I, especially Matt Emerson, is kind of my my partner in crime on this. That we hatched the idea probably um, six or seven years ago. And it took, and it was a labor uh, for us, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of get a publisher to buy it, uh, to buy into it. Uh, because very often publishers don't want to take something that's distinctively Baptist and they don't want to publish books anymore that are multi-authored. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is something we believed in, we pushed for, we fought for, we prayed for. And and we have, you know, I think um, a fine collection of, of, of essays here from these different Baptist scholars who are, are are trying to approach this issue from a number of different angles. I mean, we have chapters on on Christology and the Trinity. We have chapters on baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have chapters on uh, spirituality, uh, of racial reconciliation, um, on on ecumenism, on worship. And so there's there there um, it's just a lot of thought has gone into this. Mm-hmm. A lot of prayer and study has gone into this. But just as a rallying cry to say, again, both to Baptists and to evangelicals. That, I mean, one of the things that we want to say is 
you don't have to leave. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know for a lot of people, um, you know, I've dealt with this with college students a lot. You know, there's this impulse to say, well, if I really want to, well, like, like, like the, um, the Roman Catholic Cardinal, uh, John Henry Newman, who was, Mm -hmm. who was Anglican and became, became Roman Catholic, became a Cardinal. Uh, he famously said one time that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And I think for a lot of people, that's how they, that's how they view this. Like if I really want the tradition, if I really want liturgy, if I really want sacraments, if I really, if I really want uh, the, sort of the tradition of spirituality that, that I read about in the fathers and the medievals and so on, then I have to just become Catholic or I have to become Orthodox or, or, or maybe at the very least I have to become Presbyterian or Anglican. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to say to Baptists and other evangelicals, no, you don't. <laughs> you, can, you can remain uh, and go deep in your own tradition, but at the same time, broaden your vision to recognize that we're all a part of the body of Christ. And that one day, there's not going to be Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals in heaven, uh, but there's only going to be Christians, That's those right. who are united to yeah. Jesus Christ. That's and right. we can get a foretaste of that, even now, as we appropriate as far as we can the riches of the whole body of Christ. Richard Mao, who was the, who was the former president of Fuller uh, Seminary in California, once compared the denominations of the Christian church uh, to holy orders, you know, like the Franciscans mm-hmm. or the Dominicans or whatever. They're sort of these distinct uh, holy orders who each bring their own unique gifts to bear in the one body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that we would be impoverished if we lacked any one of them. Yeah. Like we, we need the Pentecostal emphasis on the Holy Spirit. We need... Uh, the Presbyterian emphasis on the glory of God. Mm-hmm. We need the Anglican emphasis on the beauty of worship. We need all of these traditions together uh, because they're all different members of the one body of Christ. That's the body's good. not one member, right? Like Paul says, but many members that make up the one body of Christ. That's what we're really after in this book. That's, That's good. really good. Very good. I could sit here and talk about this three more hours, order lunch in get pizza, but <laughs> we won't do that to you. But thank you so much for coming in. Yes, hey, thank you for coming. Listeners, make sure you go and grab Baptist and the Christian tradition towards an evangelical Baptist Catholicity. You can get this basically anywhere. I know Amazon yep. for sure. Anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, Amazon, Broadman and Holman Academic. Is Kindle, the you can get it on Kindle. Yep, yeah. download an ebook or physical copy. So make sure you go ahead and grab that copy. But look, thank you so much for joining us, listening today. If you would, go ahead and rate us, give us a review like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And we'll see you back in a couple of weeks.